Hi, this is Pastor Ryan Spooner. I'm so glad that you're listening to our sermon podcast. I hope it's a blessing. If you live in the area, or even if you don't, we would love to have you join us on a Sunday morning. We meet at 10.30 a.m. at the Millworks in Willington, Connecticut, 156 River Road. Also, if you'd ever like to help support our church financially, we would be extremely grateful. You can donate through our website, stpaulschurchct.org. Thanks. All right. Good morning, everybody. So this is our fifth week now in our Christ the Healer series, where we've been looking at the stories of Jesus' healing miracles and asking what they reveal to us about God and about us and about what is true. And this week, we're coming to a story that is challenging. I have to admit, I wrestled with this passage all this week. Um, This is what's known as the story of the Gerasene demoniac, or for those who may be familiar with the Gospels, uh, the one with the pigs. And this one is a little bit different because most of the, well, all of the healing miracles that we've looked at so far have had to do with physical conditions. But this one is a healing of a spiritual and mental condition. Uh, This is the healing of a man who is uh, possessed by demons. It's an exorcism. So, uh, if you want to follow along in your own Bible, turn to Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 26. Luke chapter 8. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this cold morning. We thank you for the privilege of being able to gather and worship, and we pray that right now you would open our hearts and minds up to receive whatever your spirit wants to say to us. Help us to attend to you right now, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus... They found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. 
Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them, because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. So, quite a story. Now, we're told that the disciples and Jesus sail into the region of the Gerasenes. Uh, and it's important for us to recognize this would be a non-Jewish area, a Gentile area, um, which is why there's all these pigs there. Okay? Jewish people saw p- pigs as unclean. They didn't keep pigs. Uh, so the fact that there are all these pigs is a clear indication this is a, uh, a Gentile area. And uh, when the Gospel of Mark records this, seri- this, uh, this scene, it begins with Jesus saying, let's sail over to the other side. And I hear in that something like, you know, let's go over to the other side of the tracks. This is something that the disciples would have been uncomfortable with, right? If you're a pious Jew, you don't go into Gentile areas because they saw those areas as unclean. And if they were worried that this area would be unclean, they were right, right? Because not only are there all the the, the pigs, but the first thing they encounter when they show up is a man who is a walking cleanliness code violation, right? He, he's, he's naked. He lives in the tombs, which means he lives around corpses all the time. That's against the Mosaic law. You shouldn't be near dead things. And, of course, he's filled with unclean spirits. Not just one unclean spirit, but as we'll come to find, find out, thousands of unclean spirits. So the disciples might have thought, boy, this was a bad idea, right? This, this scene would make anybody's skin crawl, but especially for pious Jews. Ugh, gross. Now the spirit in this man seems to recognize Jesus immediately, that the enemy has come into its territory. And so it confronts Jesus, right? It says, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you. Don't torture me. When I hear those words, don't torture me, all I hear is, don't make me stop abusing this man. It's what I love to do. I'm reminded of when someone who is being abused tries to draw a boundary in front of their abuser, and the abuser says, why are you being so mean to me? Right? Why do you torture me so? The demon has driven this man into isolation. He was so out of control that when the people tried to chain him up, he would break the chains and go off into solitary places. So this man is not capable of human relationships at this point, right? He's no longer part of society. He lives with the dead. He might as well be dead. Now we're told that Jesus commands the spirit to leave... But it doesn't leave right away. And as far as I know, this is the only point in the Gospels where this happens. Every other time when Jesus commands a spirit to leave, it goes. But this time, it doesn't happen right away. Now, why is that? 
Well, I can't say that I understand all the rules of the demonic realm. And honestly, after looking at this story, I feel like I have more questions than I did, you know, before I really studied it about that. Um, but maybe the reason the command doesn't work right away is because there's more than one demon in there. There's thousands. Maybe it's because this is a Gentile area, and so Jesus has to push just a little bit harder to dislodge the evil and get the demons to recognize, no, this isn't your territory either. Maybe it's both of those reasons. I'm not sure. But whatever the reason is, the story clearly shows us that Jesus is more powerful than the demons. Now, Jesus asks, what is your name? And the answer, legion. Now, that's very significant. We've got to talk about that. A legion was a Roman unit of soldiers, four to 6,000 of them. So at least two things are being implied by this name of legion. So the first one is that this man is plagued by a lot of demons, thousands. The second implication requires a little bit of historical context. So at the time, Roman soldiers occupied this land, right? They occupied the Jewish regions and the Gentile regions. The Roman Empire was enormous. And the soldiers controlled the populace through fear and threats of violence. So just as the land had been possessed by Roman legions, this man has been possessed by demons, right? Just as the land had been possessed by violent forces, this man has been possessed by violent spirits. So when the demon says, my name is Legion, there's an implication that demonic forces are at work in and through the Roman legions. When violent people take over a land and rob the people there of their resources and their wealth, there's something demonic happening there. For example, it is appropriate to call the movement that was Nazism a demonic movement. And it was a demonic movement whether the leaders of that movement were consciously worshiping Satan or participating in occultic rites or anything like that. Whether or not they were doing that, it was a demonic movement. Because Jesus tells us that the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So wherever you see movements that are all about stealing, killing, and destroying, it is fair to say, that's demonic. The way that Native Americans were treated in this country. It's demonic. The slave trade. Demonic. Apartheid in South Africa. Demonic. The Rwandan genocide of 1994. If you ever read about that. Demonic. We have to be careful not to make the mistake of limiting the demonic to the purely supernatural stuff the horror movie, exorcist-style stuff. I believe that that stuff happens. We see that in the Gospels. We see that in this story. But we should also recognize the demonic at work in the legions, in the political powers throughout history that have dehumanized people, 
and the senseless violence that has characterized so much of history, going all the way back to those first two brothers, Cain and Abel, right? It's a demonic pattern. I think we should also recognize the demonic in other not-so-supernatural ways, other not-so-supernatural manifestations, like in our tendency towards us and them thinking, tribalistic, hyper-partisan kind of thinking where the pursuit of truth becomes like some sort of sport, like a team sport, rather than actually trying to figure out what's real. We see the demonic at work in our tendency to scapegoat all of society's problems on an innocent victim or an innocent group. You know, for example, how many times throughout history have the Jewish people been scapegoated? During the Black Plague, people claimed that the source of the plague was the Jews who had poisoned the wells. Of course, Hitler blamed them for all of Germany's economic woes. And today there are still people who come up with these crazy conspiracy theories trying to scapegoat the Jews. Now, why, why do people believe that stuff? Is it because there's any real evidence for anything that they're saying? No, it's all just propaganda. But why are people inclined to believe it? They're inclined to believe it because they want a scapegoat. They want somebody to blame for society's problems, someone to blame that makes them feel better about themselves. And that's demonic. We need eyes to see the ways that the demonic works rather than just thinking of, you know, the head spinning around exorcist style, the showy kind of stuff. But anyway, that's a tangent. <laughs> could flesh that out more in a whole other sermon. But let's get back to the story. What is your name, Legion? Now, we might wonder, well, why does Jesus ask for the name? Why do that? Well, some scholars point out that if we look at ancient exorcism texts, like instructions on how to perform an exorcism, one of the tactics uh, was you were supposed to find out the name of the demon because then you could exercise authority over it. I don't understand why, but that's in those ancient texts. So maybe Jesus is just following a typical exorcism convention of the time. But I'm not totally sold on that because Jesus performs a lot of exorcisms. We don't hear him doing that in any other situation. Uh, I don't know that Jesus really needs to know the name of a demon in order to cast it out. And we, once Jesus finds out the name, it doesn't even say that he uses the name to cast the demon out, right? So maybe, but I'm not convinced. Another possible answer is that Jesus asked the question, and that's recorded in this story, because it's meant to show the connection between the demonic and the forces of violent empire. We're supposed to make that connection, as I tried to make earlier. So, maybe. But my favorite possible answer might be the simplest one, which is that Jesus is not asking the demons, but asking the man. What's your name? That Jesus' question is an invitation for the true man to come forth. The real man who's made in the image of God. What is your name? I believe that's a question that God asks each one of us. How are you going to answer that? What is your name? 
Who are you? I like this interpretation also because recognizing who we truly are is a powerful defense against the demonic. I think that the demonic has a tendency to try to convince us that our true name is something different than it really is. And I think the favorite names that they suggest are garbage and superior. My name is garbage. My name is better than everyone else. And I think that the demonic also likes to get us to bounce between those two names. I'm the worst. I'm the best. I'm the worst. I'm the best. When we embrace either of those false names, it leads to all kinds of dysfunctions. And if the population at a whole is embracing those false names, it leads to societies, societal uh, dysfunctions, right? Leads to broken relationships, self-hatred, anger, susceptibility to addiction and violence. But the Holy Spirit calls us to see ourselves as we truly are, to embrace our true names, which is we are beloved children of God, made in his image. Yes, we are sinners. We are sinners who are in need of humility and forgiveness and help. But at the same time, we are called to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We are called to be ministers of reconciliation, ambassadors for the kingdom of God. And when we see ourselves as we truly are, as God has made us and called us to be, the demonic loses power. It loses its power to get us to participate in schemes of violence and tribalism and racism and scapegoating. But this man is too possessed by these evil forces to even say his actual name, right? His identity has been drowned out by the demonic. He has totally lost himself. But Jesus can find him again. And the demons know they don't have a chance. Jesus will not let them stay. And so they start begging, oh, don't don't send us into the abyss. The what? What's that? The abyss. Well, this is a Greek word, abusos, and it can be translated as the abyss or the deep or the pit. And here's something really interesting. I love this. The Greek translation of the Old Testament uses this same word in the very beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the abusas, the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So the deep, the abyss, the abusas... It is the dark, watery, chaotic, unformed creation before God starts saying, let there be. So if something goes into the abyss, it goes back into that formless and empty primordial state before God started fashioning the world. To go back into the abyss is to go back into non-being. So I hear the demons saying here, don't send us into non-existence. Don't deprive us of our being. We want to keep being. We want to keep abusing. We know it's our destiny eventually to go to non-being, but not yet. Don't let us go there yet. 
But again, they know that Jesus is not going to let them stay in this man. And so they beg, well, send us into those pigs over there. And Jesus consents. And then as soon as the demons enter the pigs, they rush down into the water and they drown. About 2,000 pigs. It's a lot of pigs. Now we might ask, well, who is really responsible for the death of these 2,000 pigs? Jesus does consent to the demons going into the pigs, but it wasn't his idea. It wasn't necessarily what he wanted. We might say, oh, well, Jesus is really at fault for that. But if we start thinking that way, we have to say that God is really at fault for every terrible thing that any person chooses to do. See what I mean? It's like if, if somebody does something terrible, I don't say, well, how, how could God do that, right? Because it wasn't God that did that. It was the person. Now, God did consent in some sense to allow this, these circumstances to exist where this person did this terrible thing, right? But still, it's not really God that deserves the blame. It is the person, right, with, <clears throat> who's made that choice. And so I, I, I would say in this situation, it's not Jesus that really deserves um, the blame for the death of these pigs, but it is the demons. This is what they wanted. They wanted to go into the pigs. But another question might be, well, did the demons really want to kill the pigs? And I'm not sure about that either, because they beg to go into a host, and then immediately the host is dead. So now what are they going to do? Right? I wonder if what really happened here is just that when the pigs experienced the demons going into them, they just went nuts, right? And, uh, and they, they, they were suicidal, basically. One sign of demonic influence is self-destructive madness. That's what we see with these pigs, right? Self-defeating patterns of thought and behavior not only in individuals, but also in entire communities. Now, I find it interesting that it's a crowd that self-destructs here, a herd, a mob. The demonic is a way of working entire groups of people into frenzies of self-destruction. You know, honestly, I don't entirely understand why the demons want to go into the pigs or what we're supposed to learn from that moment. If you have ideas, talk to me after service. I'd love to hear it. But I do think that we're supposed to see an example of the self-destructive power of the demonic and the way that power can drive an entire crowd off a cliff. I think we're being given an illustration of something that we can recognize from our own experience, something that we can recognize that gets repeated over and over again throughout history, times where crowds or entire nations get seized by some kind of ideology that drives them over to violent madness. But praise God, this, is, this story is not just an illustration of demonic madness, right? It's a story of Jesus' power to save us from it. And I just love the way that the formerly possessed man is described Right? Sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. Sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. 
Jesus has the power to free us from our self-destructive patterns. He has the power to put us in our right minds, to give us the kind of discernment that stops us from following the crowd off the cliff. You know, if you were a German citizen in the 1930s and 40s, what would have kept you from following the Nazi crowd into anti-Semitism and violent nationalism? What would have kept you from doing that? What would have put you in your right mind? Well, simply calling yourself a Christian wouldn't have done it. We know that. Many people who claim to be Christian followed that crowd off the cliff. But truly following Jesus, listening to his voice, being led by his spirit, imitating his example, that would have put you in your right mind. We need Jesus to put us in our right minds. You know, I hear some people trying to argue that Jesus is not necessary for us being in our right minds. Some people think it's actually best to abandon religious faith entirely if we want to be in our right minds. But I don't think that atheism and secularism have a, uh, a good record of putting people in their right minds. In fact, I would argue that there's a lot of evidence that atheism and secularism lead us to madness. The atheistic, communistic governments of the 20th century killed millions and millions of people. Think of Stalin, Mao Zedong, Pol Pot. If atheism and secularism have the power to put us in our right minds, why did the Nazis use the philosophy of Nietzsche, the atheist, the anti-Christian philosopher, to justify the things they were doing and to inspire them? If atheism and secularism put us in our right minds, then why is our increasingly secular society having such an explosion of anxiety and depression? Atheism does not have the power to put us in our right minds. Now, at the same time, we have to admit that religion, generally speaking, doesn't have the power to put us in our right minds either. A lot of religious people are crazy. But Jesus, the real Jesus, known and followed, he can do that. He can set us free from the madness of hatred and retribution and violence and pride and reality denial and scapegoating. He can deliver us from both our feelings of worthlessness and our arrogant, prideful superiority. He can do that. The question is, will we listen to him? Will we let him? Will we listen? And the ending of the story reminds us that we have a choice here and we can get it wrong. We're told that when the people see the demon-possessed man in his right mind, they are what? They are afraid. And they're so afraid that they ask Jesus to leave. Luke says that they're overcome with fear. Why? I thought about this 
for such a long time, I was still thinking about it this morning. Why do they react this way? I mean, you would think they would be happy, right? You'd think they would see this man who had been so messed up now in his right mind and that they would celebrate and then they'd be like, hey, I know some other people that need to see this guy, right? That seems like the reasonable reaction. Why do they respond to this with fear, overwhelming fear? Well, I got a couple possibilities for you. Can't say I know for sure, but I'll give you a couple possibilities. So one is that Jesus' power and holiness are just too amazing, too overwhelming for the people. They can't handle it. And one evidence of this would be what happens earlier in the Gospel of Luke when Jesus first calls the disciples. They've been fishing all night. They haven't been able to catch anything. Jesus shows up and he's like, oh, put your nets over and you'll get a catch. And they put the nets over. They're filled to overflowing. And what is Peter's reaction? It's not, yay, fish. Right? His, his reaction is, oh, Lord, away from me. I am a sinful man. There's something about knowing that you're in the presence of someone so holy and powerful that makes us afraid. So that's one, one possible reason why the people reacted this way. And I definitely think that's part of what's going on here. But I don't think that tells the whole story. Because throughout the Gospels, lots and lots of people experience Jesus and see him doing amazing things. And they don't run away. Right? They start bringing out their sick and their possessed. So it seems like there's a little something more happening here. Second possibility is that the people are worried that Jesus is going to hurt their economy. I mean, he just drowned 2,000 pigs. Those pigs weren't there for decoration. They were a source of income. So that might be what's going on, but it seems like it would make more sense for the word not to be fear, but anger. How dare you kill our pigs? Get out of here. But fear? Like, I don't know if that entirely fits. Are you going to kill more pigs, Jesus? So I don't know that I buy that. But here's a third possibility. This is my favorite one. I think it includes both those two previous possibilities, and it brings in more from the story. So remember, the man is possessed by legion, and that reflects the fact that the land is possessed by the Roman legions. So although the man has been freed from the demonic legion, the land is still possessed by the Roman legions. And those legions keep the population in fear. So maybe the reason that people are so afraid of Jesus is because they're worried that Jesus is going to make the Roman authorities angry. The legions. You know, if there's some Jewish miracle worker wandering around in Gentile areas, drawing crowds, doing miracles the Roman authorities may look at that as a threat, a threat to their power and their order. And so it's possible that the people are thinking, hey, we don't want you to rock the boat around here. Go back to the Jewish area. Get out of here because we don't want to provoke those Roman legions. So they say, please, get out of here. Get out of here before they come for us. That's my theory. So maybe the problem isn't that they're afraid of how holy Jesus is. 
Maybe the, the problem is that they're, they don't appreciate how holy he is, right? Because they're still more afraid of the Roman authorities than they are of Jesus, who has authority over them. Anyway, whatever is going on here, the people aren't able to respond to this moment the way that they should. The appropriate response to seeing a man healed and in his right mind should be awe and celebration and praise. I mean, however valuable those pigs were, this man is worth more. They should be celebrating. But the people are too afraid to appreciate the moment. Too afraid of God, or too afraid of economic loss, or too afraid of the Roman legions, or of all three. And because of their fear, they're acting like those pigs. Self-destructive. Begging the one who has the power to put them in their right mind to get out. So I'll close with this thought. I know I've gone a little bit long. I see this story reflecting something that is true about people. It doesn't make much sense, but it's true, which is this. Sometimes we prefer the dysfunction we're familiar with to health that is unfamiliar. Sometimes we prefer the dysfunction that we're familiar with to health that's unfamiliar. Even if the people had good reasons to be afraid of God and financial loss and the Roman legions, they should have looked at this man who was healed and seen glorious possibility. The possibility of healing and health and freedom. But their fear kept them from seeing that possibility. And so they preferred the dysfunction that they were familiar with to the possibility of an unfamiliar healthiness. I think this dynamic shows up a lot in families. You know, people get used to a system of dysfunction, a family system of dysfunction. And it becomes familiar. And even though it's not good, there's a safety in that familiarity. And if someone shows up, you know, somebody in the family tries to change the system, or maybe a pastor or a counselor comes in and tries to right the ship, people suddenly react with anger and fear. What are you doing? Let's choose to trust Jesus' healing power more than our fear. Let's not cling to familiar dysfunction, but be open to new possibilities. Let's let Jesus put us in our right mind. Lord, we do want to be in our right mind. We don't want to follow the mob off a cliff. We don't want to live in fear of demonic powers, however they may be at work in the world. We want to trust that you are stronger. And we want to be set free from the patterns of self-destruction that demonic forces try to lead us down. Help us not to run off that cliff into the water. Help us to follow you. 
And help us not to be afraid of any of the ways that you may want to come into your, our lives with your power and holiness and replace dysfunction with functionality. Replace um, sickness with health. Lord, we want to be open to that. We want to receive your healing. In Jesus' name, amen.